Vivian Marcuse, licensed by the Department of Financial Institutions and MLS ID 237926. Also licensed in Arizona, 0941504. Florida, LO76508. Georgia, 69178. Idaho, Nevada, 57237. Oregon, Tennessee, 184373. Texas, Washington, MLO237926. She's a mortgage mom. She can get things done. When you're in need and don't know where to go, pick up the phone and call mom. And welcome to Mortgage Mom Radio. I am Debbie Marcoux, and we are here live with our seminar all about the beginner's guide to Bitcoin. Uh, we're going to go ahead and flip over to the Zoom screen right now so that everybody can see what is going on. They're going to get us started. Um, so for just right this second, go ahead and hold tight. And it looks like Danielle is ready to go. So Perfect. And then Mikey, go ahead and make me small so that they're back to their presenter screen. That's all it's given us the option of. I don't know if uh, Jordan knows how to do it, Danielle, to make it back to where you guys were at before, or you do. Oh, I see. So it's my personal view. I get to select what we want. Perfect. I love it. events during the year. Um, in November, we did a huge tailgate party for the UCLA versus USC game with a taco bar, DJ, bounce house, face painting, and more. In December, we had a snow play in Santa Day. We had over 400 people attend. Um, we brought in two real snow sledding ramps, had crafts for the kids, a photo booth, and pictures with Elsa, Olaf, and Santa. And we also do things like an annual shred day where you can come shred any documents you want for free on a mobile shredding truck right in front of your eyes. And we also do numerous other fundraisers for the community. Uh, if you want to be added to our Team Whitney real estate events list, you can text me at 310-987-9103, and I'll add you to our future list for events. Uh, and then one of our speakers today, who I will introduce in a little bit, is Grant Luna. His mom, Rana Luna, is our title representative from Fidelity National Title Company, and she started an organization called Maria's Closet. Maria's Closet 
uh, dresses hundreds of young teenagers for prom each year who would normally not be able to attend due to financial reasons. It's a great cause. And this year, due to COVID, they're very short on accessories for the girls. So our team put together a Super Bowl pool fundraiser, who I hope the Rams are in, uh, for them to raise $1,000 for the organization. So basically, you can buy a Super Bowl square just like you normally would. They're $25. 40% of each square is going to go back to Maria's closet. The, the remaining proceeds are going to go to our square winners. And if you want to sign up for the Super Bowl pool today, we still do have squares. If we fill up, we'll start another one. Um, you can text TW event. So TW for Team Whitney event, E-V-E-N-T, to the phone number 59559, and that'll send you the link to go ahead and pick your square. Um, and then, Jordan, if you could go ahead and put on uh, our screen share, and then I'll talk on a couple of these slides. Is it your mouse to go forward? Okay, yeah, here, so just let me have this. Okay, so just real quick, a little bit about our team, because I know we have a lot of people here today that have not uh, met our team yet. Um, we ha I own the team, Team Whitney Real Estate. My dad, Robert, started our team back in 1980. I joined the team in 2005, and I also have my broker's license, which is higher than an agent license. Uh, my dad passed away of cancer back in 2018, and that's when I took over the team. I graduated from UCLA with a major in applied math, a combination of math and business, and I have two minors in accounting and computer science. I'm married to my wonderful husband, Frank, who's on the screen there, um, and we have a beautiful little girl named Madeline. We call her Maddie, and her middle name is Robin after her dad, or after my dad and her guardian angel, Robert. And that's our little dog, Toby. And Frank and I love to travel with our family. We own a timeshare too, so we go a lot of different places and have a lot of fun. I do invest in cryptocurrency uh, and have made over six figures with it. Um, my husband and I bought another investment property this past summer, and we used Deb as our lender. And when we did that this past summer, uh, only in July, we could not use our cryptocurrency accounts for our down payment or as uh, reserves to qualify for that loan. And now things have changed. We're only six months later and things have already changed in this space where you can use cryptocurrency in some way for your down payment um, or to use that as reserves. So we're going to learn today how to do that along with learning about crypto. And then we have uh, Lauren on our team. Uh, she joined our team in 2017 as our executive assistant, and she got her license in 2019, and she is now our lead buyer's agent and my co-listing agent. Uh, she graduated from USC with a major in business and an emphasis in marketing. Uh, yes, she graduated from UCLA, USC, and I was UCLA, so we do have team divided over here. Hence <laughs> our November event, which I, we were victorious at. Um, <laughs> She is married to her awesome husband, Brian, and they have two adorable little boys named Connor and Hayden. Uh, Lauren loves to garden and travel with her family, especially to the Colorado River where they boat and do all sorts of fun things. Uh, then we have, oh, then we have Jordan on our team. Uh, she just joined our team last year. She's our executive assistant. She graduated from Concordia with a major in biology and a minor in chemistry. 
Uh, she obtained a PhD in pharmacy from California North State. She was the first in her family to graduate college. So yes, I have a lot of smart cookies on my team. Um, her, this is her first position in the real estate field. So she's loving learning all of the aspects of our business. She has started to obtain her notary license and also wants to get her real estate license this year. Uh, she likes to do art, crafts, photography, and is a movie buff. So now on to the good stuff. While, why you all are here today, and me as well, I would love to learn about all of this. Uh, Grant, we're going to introduce Grant Luna, the Anderson Business Advisor, one of our main speakers for today. He has been an active investor and educator in the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency space in multiple ways. His experience includes creating an educational webinar series for Valiant Trading, hosting a weekly webinar for Anderson Business Advisors, as well as maintaining an active role within the Orange County Bitcoin network. Grant particularly enjoys the fundamental aspects of Bitcoin's history, network structure, and helping people with their technical usage and understanding of Bitcoin. So I'm going to let Grant start teaching us and take it away from here. Hey, so if I can jump in really quick, uh, just really super fast, since this is on YouTube streaming as well, I want to make sure that all of my viewers know that they are more than welcome to ask any questions that they want. I will read those to Grant so that he can answer them for you. Uh, we have a couple of people that have jumped on. Druin uh, jumped in. He says, can't wait to see this. And uh, Realtor Heather says, uh, hi, everyone. So I also want to make sure everybody is aware if you guys are out there, you're watching, you're streaming with us, let me know you're here. Say hi, put it in the feed. But again, this is an interactive show. Please feel free to ask those questions for each presenter. And I will make sure I'm going to be kind of the MC of the day and make sure I get those questions to them so that they can answer those for you. So Grant, so sorry, didn't mean to jump in on you, but please feel free take it Always. away thank you and thanks everyone for coming today i know some people it's easy to not come but it's cool seeing like faces that want to learn about cryptocurrency and bitcoin and uh that was definitely a long-winded bio just saying i geeked out over bitcoin pretty hard for a long time <laughs> and uh something i really enjoy i think uh a lot of people might just see it as kind of investment which it definitely can be it really helps i think there's some deeper implications that i think are really cool i like sharing with people and i appreciate the uh, opportunity to do so uh but like danielle said so Currently, right now, I have basically like a weekly webinar that I use for Anderson Business Advisors, which is like an investment group people go to for estate planning, tax planning, things like that. And now, recently, people are interested in cryptocurrency, so I help people kind of with the conceptual understanding of these things and then also the technical understanding, so how they can use it themselves, whether that be exchanges, wallets, privacy, security, because I think the more you understand it on a deeper level, besides just like clicking buttons, the better you feel a little bit more secure in your ability to do so. And I think you know, any confidence you can build in yourself and your technical abilities is really great. But today what I'll be doing is I'll be going over the history of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I think it's, uh, you might have probably heard just like some high-level stuff in, in news or articles and things like that, but I think it helps to uh, hear a little bit more to kind of get a sense of like the motivation or the purpose of these projects. And I think it's cool history. It's a really cool story. I think it also kind of shows what the impact of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin can be. And then kind of finish with going over like Coinbase, so showing you an exchange for people. And I think you said you've been investing for a bit, so you're probably familiar with exchanges by now. But uh, kind of helps like know, I guess, the ins and outs of exchanges. How do you buy? How do you sell? Then also, how do you increase your security and privacy on these exchanges? Because I know people have probably heard a lot of like horror stories of people having their accounts wiped out or lose their passwords and stuff. And uh, I think the less fear you can, I guess, handle, the better with this space. Or I think that understanding helps. And uh, also a wallet as well. So how to, I guess, take true ownership of your cryptocurrency uh, holdings. But kind of jumping into it and, and learning about the history of Bitcoin. 
I think it's always important when uh, learning anything about history and events that happened to have a broader, I guess, appreciation of the context in which those events took place. Uh, never great, I think, to look at things in a vacuum. And so 2008, I think, is a year most people, at least if you're talking about real estate or financial markets, uh, has, I think, a certain connotation of the financial crisis of 2008 that people are probably pretty familiar with. But I guess a uh, quick review, obviously, people uh, were shook by, I would say, large-scale instability in a financial system that they were used to working pretty soundly for a long time. And we saw mainstays in the financial space like Lehman Brothers go under or other financial institutions essentially have to be bailed out by our government for the first time. And I think a lot of people were, I think, rightly, I think, frustrated by that situation. Uh, they thought that the people that were largely responsible for causing that financial crisis that might have cost them their home or might have cost them basically their retirement savings and their investments to go down. Uh, but they saw those very same institutions that they felt were responsible being bailed out, essentially in a way re rewarded for that kind of behavior. And we saw things like Occupy Wall Street. So essentially these movements of people that were calling them for some form of systemic change that they felt was needed at that point in time and people that they felt were left out of the existing financial system. And that's kind of where we have uh, Bitcoin come into play, because although there weren't that large scale systemic changes, uh, nothing really changed after 2008 in terms of how the existing financial structure was was uh, was running. We did see kind of the emergence of a new financial system entirely, and that's what Bitcoin is. So I like to like look a little bit more into the history of Bitcoin and share that with you, because like I said, it gives you, uh, I guess, an understanding of, of the motivation behind the project. But late 2008, uh, an anonymous figure named Satoshi Nakamoto released uh, something called a white paper, which is basically just like a, a research paper saying, hey, here's this project that I want to develop. Come look at it. Come ask questions. Let me know what you think. And he or she released this white paper to a group of uh, email, I guess, posters called the cypherpunks. And these were people that were interested in things like cryptography or creating new technologies that would help individuals with privacy, security, especially in an increasing digital age that they thought would lead to some potential overreach in some of those privacies that we've at least seen in the last 10 years or so. And so he or she released this proposal. People started looking into it, asking questions, criticizing it, and working on that project together. And a couple of things I want to highlight with that initial story is uh, the first thing, that creator, Satoshi Nakamoto. And I said he or she because to this day, no one knows who Satoshi Nakamoto is. And the other thing is that first email chain uh, saying that I've been working on a new electronic cash system that's fully peer-to-peer -peer with no trusted third party. And I'll talk a little bit more on the next slide about what that truly means, that peer-to-peer -peer trustless system of money. And also what's really cool about like the early days of of Satoshi and Bitcoin and its development as we get we got to see uh, kind of the active stages of development in which most technologies we don't get to see that right we just have the new iPhone we have the new invention that we start using but we saw from very early on these email chains or blog posts where people would be asking us questions so we got to see the actual motivation of the creator behind Bitcoin and so an example that I wanted to show is one of these email responses from Satoshi saying the root problem with conventional currency is all the trust required to make it work the central bank must be trusted not to debase the currency, but the history of fiat currencies is full of breaches of that trust. So fiat currency is essentially just meaning the currency that we use on a daily basis, the currencies that are issued by our governments and central banks. And so from the very onset, Bitcoin was somewhat created as an alternative to the traditional currencies that we are using on a daily basis. And I'll go more into detail about some of the alternatives or I guess some of the improvements that Bitcoin is trying to be in terms of traditional currency. And I always show this one at the bottom right because I think it's a really cool example of Bitcoin history. So what you're looking at, and if you're on the Zoom, basically the uh, white square at the bottom right. This is an example of the very first Bitcoin block that was ever created. So late, or sorry, early 2009, uh, Bitcoin was actually released. 
And what was cool about Bitcoin is basically just like this open project that anyone could join. You could essentially download the Bitcoin software on like your personal computer like this and start trying to mine Bitcoin. And people have probably heard about mining Bitcoin. I'm not going to go super in depth today just because it's like it'd take a long time basically I think to uh, go into more detail about it. But it's essentially the process in which new blocks of Bitcoin transactions are approved and attached to that like blockchain ledger that people have heard of. But what's really cool, I think, which is not as widely known, is in each uh, Bitcoin block, the person that created that block, which is that miner, they have the ability to put in any like piece of data that they want. And it could be a message of their choosing. So most will just put who the miner is, like I'm part of this mining group or something like that. Uh, a funny example is recently someone put like a Dr. Seuss quote in one of the like blocks in the transactions. But I show this one. So this is the very first Bitcoin block that was ever created. It was created by Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin. And at the bottom right, it reads... The Times, 03 January 2009, Chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks. So that was a headline of a UK newspaper in early 2009 um, in the UK, basically saying there was another round of bank bailouts because of financial crisis. So from the very first Bitcoin block that was created, essentially poking fun at the existing financial system and saying, this is the reason Bitcoin is created. It's essentially an alternative to the existing financial system that is being ran. And then in terms of some of the properties of Bitcoin, uh, we'll go into way more depth in a couple of slides, but the first thing is obviously the nature of Bitcoin in terms of how that monetary system is structured in terms of money in general as well. I think it's important to kind of view just money through the lens of technology because in a way that's all it really is, right? It's something that humans have created to facilitate economic interactions with individuals, right? It makes it easier for us to send goods and services between each other. And how that is ran, it's essentially just a ledger, right? It's something that maintains the history of all these transactions. It means the history of your account balances, uh, but right now, what we're using is essentially a centrally ran bank ledger, right? It's a centralized institution, which is managing all these transactions, it's looking at account balances, it's approving new transactions. And it works pretty well for us, right, in the United States. We'll talk about examples later on, but Bitcoin kind of shifted that. So instead of a reliance on a centralized party or small group of individuals to maintain that economic ledger, instead, it's a decentralized system. So it's right now, essentially, tens of thousands of computers which are just individuals, right? So for example, at my house right now, I have something called a full Bitcoin node. And what that means is I set up this small computer, I downloaded the Bitcoin software, and that computer automatically downloaded the entire history of the Bitcoin blockchain. And with that, downloaded the entire history of every single transaction that took place, account balances, and it's constantly monitoring the network to update that ledger of new transactions that are taking place. And it's kind of like this collective process of all these people on this network that are doing it together. And with that kind of decentralized nature of how this system is being ran, there's some emergent properties that come from that. So the first is censorship resistance. So if you have a system of money kind of reliant on an individual to monitor that system, you have that power from that individual to be able to censor certain transactions, for example. Obviously, there's certain protections that maybe we don't want certain people being able to use money, but uh, there's some individuals that might be living in certain countries where they might just fall on a certain side of the political spectrum that's kind of against the existing regime, right? So you have that person's ability to actually send money blocked by the authority at the time. Uh, also, you have seizure resistance in terms of a decentralized network. So the first thing is the actual money, Bitcoin itself, right? I can have Bitcoin on a wallet, on my phone, and I'll go into an example of how it could be represented in different ways. But essentially, money is something that can't be taken from you for the first time. Right now, obviously, we have cash that works for us, and uh, we can place it under a mattress or something like that. But most of the bank, most of the people are holding it in bank accounts, right? And people might have had a situation where they've had their bank accounts frozen. Some countries, people have had their funds literally taken out of their bank account. 
had their ability to withdraw money essentially suspended from them in difficult economic times as well. And Bitcoin essentially is a, a resolve to that, a resolution to the ability for have your money that you've worked for, you spent time to save, and uh, you can basically have true ownership of your funds. The other, th other thing about Bitcoin is that it's verifiably scarce. So the big difference, obviously, with traditional currencies and same thing, right, being centrally controlled, that person has full issuance ability to create as many units of that currency as they want. That's different with Bitcoin. So kind of the first of its kind in terms of like a new form of money that was verifiably scarce. So just because, like I said, it's a decentralized network that no one has control over, that means no one has the ability to create new units of Bitcoin and has been pre-programmed from the very onset of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin was designed to only have 21 million Bitcoin in existence. And the last thing is that Bitcoin is trustless. And what I mean by trustless is not necessarily the central aspects that I've been talking about, but in the sense that it's this open public ledger, you see every transaction taking place, but also the very code that Bitcoin runs on is open source. So what that means is you can download code for yourself. You don't have to trust anyone. It's like, this is how this network is running. You can see it for yourself. And then move them. Okay, for sure. Uh, Debbie, any questions yet? Uh, no, we just had a couple more people that have joined. We've got about 31 uh, total that are watching right now uh, through the YouTube. We've got um, NJNISI, I believe that is my good friend Nancy. She's jumped on, said hello. Uh, Pam Walker, that is actually my aunt, so we've got a good amount of family following along. She says hello. Uh, we've got a newbie. I've never seen him jump on and watch the show before, so I'm excited about that. His name is Robert, and he says hello. And then we had Cindy jump on and say, thanks so much for doing this. Such great information. So, um, again, I just want to remind everybody watching the YouTube stream here on Mortgage Mom Radio, get those questions out there, put them into the feed. I will stop Grant. I will read them out loud to him, and we'll get those answers for you. So, um, but no, Grant, you're doing amazing. Keep it coming. I'm I'm learning today. I think this is awesome. Thanks. Uh, so Bitcoin history, I think just like highlighting a couple of events is helpful to show how those properties actually manifest themselves over Bitcoin history. Because I think it's one thing just to like say them, oh, it has these properties, but actually putting them to the test is another thing. So the first Bitcoin transaction, 2009, between the creator and just an individual that's interested. But I think something that people might not have the awareness of is Bitcoin for a long time didn't even have a price associated with it. It was just people that were interested in the technology. It was basically this worst, worthless thing that people were trading out around because they thought the technology was really interesting and they wanted to see if it actually had real-world application. And that kind of changed in 2010 when first like Bitcoin exchanges started popping up, like Bitcoin Marketplace, Mt. Gox. People could actually start having basically centralized places to transact, right? Before, it was kind of hard and clunky to like actually find people to send this to. But uh, once these marketplaces emerged, it really started to allow the ecosystem to, to start developing. And then 2011, we actually started seeing some major use cases for Bitcoin, and it actually got, got put to the test for the first time. So I think the first major event that people might have heard of or maybe unconsciously have an awareness of um, was Bitcoin in the Silk Road. Does anyone here like remember the Silk Road or have heard about it? Uh, but basically, it was like this online marketplace where you could essentially like buy and sell anything. So it was kind of like part of the early dark web in a way. Uh, and if you have the ability to buy or sell anything, people are literally going to buy or sell anything. And obviously, some illegal substances were sold on that website. Uh, so obviously, like the ability to use traditional currencies would go out the window with a system like that. Uh, so what they did is they turned to a form of money that you couldn't censor, right? So whether you agree with people being able to buy or, or sell certain goods is one thing, but having a form of money that people literally could send without needing anyone's authority was, was a true test of Bitcoin. And, and they used Bitcoin for a while until the Silk Road was shut down. But I think... That was kind of the major reason where early on in Bitcoin's history, it was seen as like, oh, that's just you know, drug dealer money. That's just like criminal money. 
Uh, but kind of interestingly, that's kind of the first thing that was said about the internet as well. In the onset of the internet, they said, oh, it's just going to be used for like drug dealers and criminals and these things, right? Any new technology, I think, is scary for people, and they're going to find the scariest use cases maybe for that. Uh, but another cool, I think, use case of Bitcoin that I'm a fan of that shows some of the potential of a technology like this is WikiLeaks. Uh, so WikiLeaks, for those that aren't familiar, uh, a journalist organization and in 2011, they're kind of like uh, whistleblowers in a way, right? So they found these documents that revealed some information about the actions of the U.S. military overseas. Uh, and what ended up happening as a result of that is it didn't really show, I guess, a really positive light on those actions is the U.S. government put pressure on every single financial institution, every single payment processor like Visa to tie or basically cut ties with WikiLeaks. So WikiLeaks was one day receiving donations from people and operating and overnight essentially had their entire ability to transact or receive donations cut off. So what they did is they turned to Bitcoin and started receiving Bitcoin donations and have been doing that to this day. Once again, kind of showing those properties of the ability to have censorship resistant money and money that can't be taken from you. Because also their bank accounts were frozen, right? So they were operating and overnight basically their entire ability to continue. And then 2017, so this is, or sorry, 2011, uh, Satoshi actually left Bitcoin. So Satoshi, that creator, was working on Bitcoin for a few years and then decided to step away, saying, I've decided to move on to other things. I think what this shows is not only is Bitcoin a decentralized network in a way that it's actually operating, but it's also leaderless in terms of we're not really looking for like a figurehead or a thought leader, like, okay, what should we do next? And I think a good contrast is looking at the traditional financial system. And last week, people were essentially on pins and needles waiting for Jerome Powell to come out of a closed door meeting and saying, what are we going to do with our financial markets or, or quantitative easing or interest rates? And uh, people's retirement savings or investment accounts are basically tied up on a thought leader in a way, right? So Bitcoin is kind of changing that system in a way where we don't aren't dependent on uh, the decisions or beliefs of a, a select few group or individuals. And then 2017, uh, the Bitcoin fork wars. So a fork in terms of like computer programming, what that means, it's kind of like a split in the code, right? It's a, it's a, you can fork off and, and change codes in certain ways. And that's the same, obviously, with these cryptocurrencies because they're just like computer programs. Uh, but there was a big one in, in 2017, and I kind of consider it like Bitcoin's civil war. And so what was going on in that situation was, there was one group of people, and these were like average users like me or other people that were interested in Bitcoin, that wanted to keep Bitcoin the way it was running, right? They wanted it true to kind of the original vision in terms of how it was created. Then there was another group of individuals, which were the major exchanges at the time, and basically almost like the large majority of miners, which were very powerful players in that space, tried to make like a fundamental change in terms of how Bitcoin was operating uh, to make it a little bit more centralized because they could make more money from it and change it basically overnight. And people were really scared during this time. They didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, but ultimately, what ended up happening is the individual users had the final say. They kind of put pressure on those individuals and said, if you actually want to continue to be a part of Bitcoin, you're going to have to basically just continue as is. You're not going to be able to change this network. And why that is, is because that early example that I said where I can have a personal computer and download that software, I'm also upholding the current rules of the network, right? So I have an equal say as Coinbase, a major exchange, or the main or mi major miners. So every person on that network is an equal peer has an equal say over what's going to be happening moving forward, which isn't necessarily the case of how things are today. So Grant, we do have a couple of things coming in right now, and you can okay. tell me if you're going to hit these later on, because I don't want to take you off of your train if you're on it you're good, and you're yeah. get to it. Um, so we had uh, just Carrie jumps on, says hi. Diana says, great info, thank you. Soleil says hi, and thank you for you know explaining how this all works. Pamela asks, I have a good amount of Dogecoin. Is that ever going any place? 
So I feel like that's <clears> probably <throat> going to be down the road a little bit, a couple more slides or so, but you tell me. I can go more in, like, in the Q&A on that. I'll just like touch it briefly today, but I'm happy to talk about those in the Q&A. Perfect, perfect. And then here is the next question, which I do believe you're going to get to as well. Um, this is from Druin. He says, what is the absolute first step one should take when getting involved with crypto? For example, invest like $500. Can you walk us through that specific step? Yeah, totally. Um, we could pin that too. And then I'll talk about it when I go over like the exchanges and stuff. Perfect. Perfect. So again, I want to uh, let everybody know, put your questions in the feed. We're going to get to that. Grant's going to do a Q&A and I will make sure that we scroll back and reread all of your questions to him. So I don't want you to feel like I'm ignoring you. If you're putting those questions in my feed or in my chat box, I'm going to get those to Grant. He's going to do it when he gets to his Q&A. Awesome. Okay. Uh, so now shifting into obviously Bitcoin's not the only player in the space. I just like to talk about that first because I think it gives it like a nice foundational understanding of, of everything else moving forward and, and why this space even exists you know because i think for most people at least i think cryptocurrency seems like it just came out of nowhere right and now it's like all these crazy named coins and what are all these things and uh i think knowing like the core or the root of it is, is really helpful but over time we started to see the development of other projects besides bitcoin and i think for me conceptually it helps like put things in boxes i, I and uh, i think the two big ones that I, I created for myself in terms of understanding cryptocurrencies are quote unquote improvements to Bitcoin and then blockchain applications. Because if people have looked on cryptocurrency exchanges, you might have looked at that list and it's just like thousands of these random named things. Like why is this one different than this one? And I had that same feeling when I first like logged into an exchange. Uh, but largely I think like the improvements to Bitcoin for people moving forward, these are cryptocurrencies that are still trying to be like a form of digital money. Uh, but they claim that there is some form of, I guess, technological error or shortcomings with Bitcoin. So for example, Litecoin and XRP and Dash, these are cryptocurrencies that said, okay, Bitcoin's really cool. We like how it's designed, but it's a little too slow, right? It can't do as many transactions per second that are needed for like a global monetary uh, network in a way. Uh, so they created cryptocurrencies that could handle more transactions per second. But kind of the flip side of that, of that is that you have to sacrifice a little bit of decentralization, which I can go into more in the Q&A if people are interested. And then you also have improvements in terms of privacy. So some people thought that Bitcoin, okay, it was private enough, but you'd like to go even further with it, right? We want a money that you can't track anything because people might've heard that Bitcoin is anonymous, which isn't necessarily true. Instead it's pseudonymous, right? It's a public ledger. So you can see every single transaction that took place. You can't see names or accounts or anything like that. It's just kind of like these addresses and these digital representations of identity. Uh, but with things like Monero, for example, uh, they've created some where you can't even see the ledger itself. So super private money, but uh, these are obviously smaller projects that are just trying to find a way to, I guess, capture some form of investment from people that are interested. And then the other one, which I think probably most people have heard of now or are operating with, uh, are blockchain applications. So these are projects that looked at the way that Bitcoin is ran in terms of a blockchain, which essentially just means that like chained out history of the ledger, right? Each individual block is a new set of transactions that are linked together throughout time. And these are people that looked at that. And they said, okay, that's that's cool that you could do that for money. And it makes really like, a lot of sense to do for money. But what if we applied that to other things? Like what if we created financial markets that were basically put in these decentralized chains of history or created marketplaces for things like NFTs and put all of those things on these chained out history. And I think now there's some even for like supply chains. And I guess me personally, like I've been in the space where I'm not necessarily sold on a lot of them, but these are these new projects that are being developed. 
Uh, but these are things like Ethereum, Solana, Cardano, or Polkadot. So things that saw the, the power of that blockchain technology and wanted to apply it to different things. So I think moving forward, I think it's always helpful to have that conceptual framework for yourself. Of like, okay, is this trying to be a better version of Bitcoin or trying to be something else entirely? So I kind of view like the blockchain applications one kind of like tech stocks in a way. You're kind of investing in like a, a small group of individuals behind them. There's like a development team. I think that's the big difference as well. Like Bitcoin, like I said, is, is really decentralized. There's really no one that can influence or change it. Rather, like Solana, Cardano, Ethereum, some of the other major ones really do have like a small group of individuals that have a large-scale influence, not only on the supply of those tokens, but also on the way the network is being operated moving forward. And then the impact. So uh, I think now kind of having an understanding of the history, it always helps to know, like, okay, what, what can this do? Uh, but I think to understand an alternative technology and the impact of it, it's important to understand the shortcomings of the existing technology that we're using right now. So most people, obviously, we're here in the United States, and our money works really well for us, right? We can go to a bank account and get an account pretty easily. We can send it. We can wire it. We can link our debit card online and, and transact very easily, and it works well. Uh, but there are still some shortcomings that I think looking globally kind of help paint the picture of like, okay, what are some issues with uh, fiat currency, fiat just meaning government or centrally bank backed currency. And kind of going back to that initial example, talking about the root problem with conventional currency is all the trust required to make it work. The central bank must be trusted not to debase the currency, but the history of fiat currencies is full of breaches of that trust. Because like I said, the very nature of these currencies is that they are centrally ran and operated. And I think there's probably three big things. Uh, three big shortcomings that come as a result of that. One is having full control over the issuance of that currency. You're trusting a small group of individuals to maintain the value of that currency for you. The second thing being your ability to use the currency, right? You have to trust someone to allow you to use the currency as you want, when you want. And the third thing is the rules of the monetary system in which that currency is maintained. Because I think it's always important too to, to separate the currency from the network as well, right? Bitcoin is a monetary network and a currency. Same with the dollar. It has the dollar currency, and then the Federal Reserve System behind that. So I think those are kind of the three big shortcomings. And like I said, in the U.S., we don't really have to deal with any of those issues as much. But if you look at the first one, right, the maintenance of the value of that currency, and you don't even have to go that far back in history to look at Zimbabwe, Venezuela, right now Turkey, uh, their lira is literally going through a collapse because people have trust in individuals, kind of like a, a social agreement. Like, okay, I'm going to trust you to hold my money. I'm working really hard. I'm paying taxes. I'm doing all of these things. And you're not going to print a lot of this, right? And then they're like, okay, yeah, we won't print a lot of it. And then we kind of saw the flip side of that, and people overnight essentially had their savings taken away from them. The second thing being the ability to use that currency. So it could be on an individual level, right? You could maybe say some things in certain countries and have your ability to access your bank account turned off, or like that situation in Turkey, your ability to withdraw money from the ATM. But I think also on a, on a countrywide level, it's another thing that might not be as, I think, aware of or understood, where certain countries are completely... Uh, blocked from being able to enter the existing mainstay financial system of the dollar reserve system that exists right now. And so whether you might not agree with the governments in place in those countries, there's still people that live there. And there's those consequences of your country not being able to access the best form of money that exists, the dollar. And you have these economic consequences that affect thousands of people, millions of people that don't really know anything going on, but just the politicians in those countries don't get along. And that's another consequence of a centrally ran system. And the third being the rules of that system, right? So if a small group can change them overnight, they might change them overnight when it benefits them. So going back to 2008, that's exactly what happened. And then now in the last couple of years as well, we saw other shifts in the way that the rules were ran, the Federal Reserve being able to buy assets overnight. 
being able to create large amounts of money overnight, and that has an impact on all of us. And so that obviously changes with something like Bitcoin, going back to that example of, actually, sorry, uh, backtracking a little bit. Obviously, now we have cash, right? So the ability to like transact freely still exists decently well, right? So if I don't necessarily like the ability of banks to block my money, I could pull out a lot of cash and I could use that on a, on a day-to-day basis. But I think it's uh, right now around 92% of the world's currency is digital, and that's only going to start to increase as the Federal Reserve has been talking about rolling out a digital dollar. You have China already right now rolling out a digital yuan. And so although it will make like online commerce and transacting easier, but you still have the amplification of some of those uh, technical issues that I was talking about a little bit ago. And then how does that change? Obviously kind of reiterating some of the points I was talking about earlier. So I think points number two and three, right? The ability to limit who can join the network changes in a decentralized network where it's completely open. Anyone with a cell phone or internet connection could download a wallet and send money to anyone anywhere and no one can have that ability turned off. And then also two, basically the rules of the network. Going back to that example I was talking about of that 2017 4-4 Civil War thing, you can't change the rules of the system when it benefits you. And then the other thing is the scarcity element that I was talking about. So Bitcoin having a fixed supply of 21 million Bitcoin. And so obviously you could still use dollars if they work for you, but it's nice to have an alternative that you know that you can, might be able to uh, use as a currency in the near future that's gonna have a scarce supply to that. And we're in a real estate office right now and scarcity is obviously one of the main drivers of value, right? So it's a nice thing where you can actually have an awareness. And this picture on the top right here is the supply graph of Bitcoin throughout time. So Bitcoin is, is highly predictable where you actually know the exact date or roughly the exact date when the last Bitcoin will ever be created around the year 2140. And there will never be Bitcoin created after that. Obviously with the dollars or other government currencies, that's not necessarily the case, right? And if you want to be saving money, it's obviously not a good way to use that. And then lastly, I think other considerations before we go into like the technical thing. I think outside of kind of the obvious with talking about money, I think some recent examples kind of show other implications of things like Bitcoin, but other uh, cryptocurrency projects as well. So a recent example, the last couple of years, GameStop. So I don't know if people remember that situation, but to highlight what was uh, going on, basically as a group of retail investors, these are people that uh, found some, I guess, strategic investment opportunity that you might want to say that would really negatively impact a certain amount of hedge funds that were betting against the GameStop stock. Uh, so they basically rallied the price of GameStop stock overnight, and then Wall Street essentially overnight shut down the ability to buy that stock because it would negatively impact that hedge fund, who was very obviously close to the, to the mainstay uh, leaders of that financial system. And so something that we thought was a free market overnight showed its face that it's actually maybe it's, it's a free market for certain individuals, but not so much for other individuals. And so financial markets being developed on decentralized systems that can't be manipulated for certain groups of individuals do have, I think, a pretty interesting uh, application moving forward. And then the other thing is, I don't know if people have been seeing like El Salvador and some of the developments there, but uh, in the last year or so, they made Bitcoin legal tender. And for a country that's heavily reliant on remittance payments, people sending money overseas, I think making around like 25% of that country's gross domestic product. Uh, these are people that have access to a, a form of money that they can send freely or uh, easily whenever they want. But then also you have basically countries that have been left out of the main financial conversation, like El Salvador, the countries that have been really negatively impacted by like the International Monetary Fund and large amounts of loans and heavily in debt to these major countries that benefit from their position. Uh, these are countries that might look to some form of currency that they might have a little bit more control over. And even recently, they announced something called Bitcoin City. So what they're going to start to do is actually mine Bitcoin in the city using geothermal energy from a nearby volcano, have most of the public services funded basically by channeling this energy 
uh, have the ability basically for people to use a form of currency that they have full control over and authority over. Uh, so obviously it's very early on in the space. It's only around like 12 years now that it's been operating. Um, I'll kind of jump into the technical side now. And unless there's questions actually before I do the technical side. Uh, no, actually everybody, at least on my end over here, uh, Mortgage Mom Radio, my, my peeps are waiting for your Q&A. So we're good. But okay. I do want to remind everybody that's watching on the live stream, when he gets there, I need to have your questions. So please make sure you guys keep putting those into the feed. And then that way I can get Grant to answer them for you when he's done. Okay, so let me uh, share my screen really quick. Can people hear me okay still? Yep. Okay, awesome. Uh, so what I'll show today, I'll show two things. So one, I'll like highlight a cryptocurrency exchange called Coinbase. Uh, most other cryptocurrency exchanges will function pretty similar uh, to this. I'll show people how to buy, sell, how the wallets work within these, how to send and receive to these. Uh, and then also show like an actual wallet itself and how basically you can actually take full ownership of these funds. So Coinbase here, obviously you have all of your major assets that you can trade from. So this is what I was talking about earlier. You might come to a website like this, Coinbase, and you might scroll down and look at all these and be like, what in the world is going on? What is this chain link thing and Cosmos thing? Uh, that's why I say like kind of stick to that conceptual understanding of Okay, some are going to be Bitcoin improvements. Some are going to be uh, trying to run applications on top of those. And then you also have things like stable coins, which are always going to be uh, around a dollar, right? Tether or USD coin. They're always going to be uh, aiming to be around a dollar. It's essentially like a synthetic uh, representation of a dollar. Helps with trading. Uh, but the first thing, I guess, going back to that one question, Debbie, uh, the first thing you're going to want to do, obviously, is, is create a brokerage account in a way. And these are kind of functioning like a Fidelity or Charles Schwab brokerage account. And they're going to put you through something called like a KYC process, like a know your customer uh, process of getting your identity, getting your social security number, verifying that you are you. They're going to link a bank account to these. And when you go to trade, it's essentially just going to be pulling funds from your bank account to buy these cryptocurrencies. Uh, and what I would do first is kind of find maybe a couple of major ones just to like try out the process. I you were, you know, that person was asking like, what should I do first? I would say just get used to how it functions. So even if you're just buying like two, three, four dollars worth, do it that way. Uh, find some major ones you want to buy. And uh, what you would do on a Coinbase, for example, is you're going to star the ones that you want to actively watch in trade. But in terms of buying these cryptocurrencies, let's say I wanted to buy Cardano, for example. I'm going to make sure I click on Cardano here. And then it's going to pull up basically the whole menu of Cardano. I can see the price movements. And also, I think a good feature in terms of if people are interested in trying to somewhat, I guess, get a feel of the market uh, at the time and try to time a good time to. Uh, uh, buy or sell it actually gives you like trading activity so it'll tell you like the buy percentage and the sell percentage so uh obviously uh this has been a retracement in terms of the price lately but uh, you see more people are buying than selling currently which could have an implication of a uh, upswing in the price of this cardano token for example uh, but they make it really easy this user interface is, is very usable for people and uh, in terms of buying obviously you're just going to choose the amount you want to buy so like i said i would legitimately just like do five dollars and test it out just see what it see how it works and then it's already going to be linked to your bank account here. So just verify that your account is linked correctly here. Preview buy. It's going to show you the amount of Cardano that you'll be buying. So for $5, I can buy 3.77 of this Cardano and click buy now. And also if there's one you're really interested in, you're like, okay, I just want to invest in this long term. I don't have to do this process all the time. You can also set up a weekly buy. So let's say you want to do $10 a week, right? Or $20 a week or something. You can set that up and it'll automatically take those funds out of it. 
and buy it for you. So you don't even have to look at it moving forward. And then I think some people might have a concern of like, okay, well, how do I get my money out of this thing, right? I have this Cardano, but now what? So obviously you can just sell it as well. And what's nice about using something like a Coinbase is it's going to automatically match you with a buyer or seller on either end of the game. It's going to take a fee for that, but it makes it really easy on the user side. And so basically you just sell the same amount. I'll just sell that same $5 worth. It would go into, if you see here, cash USD. Let's say I wanted to get this money out of Coinbase. I would go to my assets here. So I was on the trade tab here, right? That's where all of the funds and the cryptocurrencies are going to be where you're actually going to buy and sell. Your assets in terms of what you actually own in this account are going to be here. And let's say I just cashed out that $5 worth of Cardano. It would be sitting in US dollar here. I'm going to click on that and hit like cash out. And it's going to go to that same bank account that I linked to buy these cryptocurrencies on. But in terms of making it really private and secure for you, because uh, there have been instances of people being able to hack these accounts and drain these cryptocurrencies or drain basically the funds from them or buy a bunch and send it to somewhere else. I always recommend uh, making these wallets as secure as possible. So wallet is basically where these funds are being held. There's a big distinction with cryptocurrency wallets that I'll go into in a couple of seconds. But to show you how to increase in privacy with these, I'll go into this one right here, Algorand, a smaller cryptocurrency. And so basically any funds that you had purchased in the past will be sitting in your wallet here. Uh, and what you can do to add some security, because this is how you'd be sending them out of your Coinbase account that will show in a couple of seconds. But I always recommend for people that are going to be holding larger amounts of cryptocurrency on here, to do a vault because a wallet just means anyone that has access to this page right now, if I go to the bathroom and Danielle stands up and I had a thousand Algorand, she could just quickly put in her own cryptocurrency address here, send it to herself and those funds are gone. Uh, so what I usually recommend doing is a vault wallet instead. And I'll show you actually that process right now. So you can create a vault for each individual different cryptocurrency and how it works is it's kind of like a, a safety deposit box in a way, right? Where you're going to have a certain amount of authorized people that can access that safety deposit box. So a very common one that a lot of these use are like two of three multi-signature is what it's called on a technical level. What that means is there's there might be like three authorized people to release those funds. And to release those funds, you need approval from two of those people. So it works really well for like family situations. If you have like a husband and a wife, so you could have like a shared key and each of them have their own individual key. And that would essentially just be like their email, right? And how that process will work when you're accessing these funds, you'd go to send it maybe to your wallet or go to sell it. And basically you'd send an email like, hey, did you want to send these funds or did you want to sell these funds from your account? And why that adds that level of security is if you're just at work and you get an email saying, hey, you're trying to sell your money and you're not trying to sell your money, you just go to Coinbase and say, oh, no, I didn't want to do that. But how it works is you're going to create obviously a name for your Algorand vault here. You have a couple of different options. So you can do on an individual level. So this would be uh, two required signatures. So it's kind of like two-factor authentication that you might have like on your phones. You might be used to that already. Uh, or you can have a group. And this is what I recommend for people that uh, are in relationships or have families or want to like, plan for estate planning or things like that. Uh, so I'll show, I guess, what it looks like on the next step for you. And it's going to have co-signers. And then you can choose basically your setup here. So you see the top one says three co-signers. At least two of them are needed to complete a withdrawal, or five cosigners. At least three of them are needed to complete a withdrawal. So if you're super paranoid and you want to be super secure, you can have it where it's three of five or two of three up to you. And then hit next. You're basically just going to enter in the emails that work for you. And then each time you go to access those funds, you're going to have to basically approve of it on those emails.
And I also wanted to show people. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep, I pulled it up here. Okay. Uh, so someone asked, with all these upstart cryptocurrencies via ICOs, STOs, how can you trust individuals are not exploiting the initial fundraising? How do you know what to invest in? What are the safest cryptocurrencies to invest in? I'll get to that right after this wallet thing. I'll do like Q and A right after that. So that that's cool. Uh, of course. When all these are if you do like an individual and you need two or three more people to sign in, one of them dies. Mm -hmm. What happens? Yeah. So if you have two or three and one of them dies, luckily you still have the two, right? So then you still basically can access those funds. And then I recommend in that situation, it's create a new one. So then you still have the two required to release those funds and send it somewhere else. And then I'll just create a new one where it's maybe just two of two, right? Or you could do two of three again, where you have one, the other person has one, and then you share one together, something that you both have access to. So you can transfer it, Gordon, into like two of the three of you would sign, right? Somebody passed and transfer it into a different vault. So create a new vault mm -hmm. with new security permissions where it's just you now that needs to sign, or you and your son now when it was a husband or something like that. Exactly, yeah. Um, okay, so I was going to show people like an actual wallet itself now because I think it's important to understand the distinction because I showed you like Coinbase's wallet, right? So you think, okay, I have, I have this wallet, I have ownership of it, I have ownership of these funds. That's actually not the case when it comes to cryptocurrency. You're just borrowing, I guess, a, a space in that. You have an IOU in that Coinbase account. So they're actually holding the funds themselves. And in terms of that ledger that I was talking about earlier, they're actually showing up as the owner of those funds. And I went to one of the examples in the past where I showed the first Bitcoin exchanges that were created, like one of them being Mt. Gox. And that was a very historic case where this major exchange essentially overnight like, got uh, hacked, they said, but basically took a lot of Bitcoin funds because they were the actual owner of those. Uh, so it's something to be aware of with having your funds on something like Coinbase is someone could get in there and hack those funds or the exchange themselves can limit your ability to actually uh, move those as you'd like. So I always recommend just getting familiar with using like an own, your own private wallet where you actually are taking ownership of the funds yourself. Uh, and this is an example of that. So this is called a blue wallet. And how it's different is I'm not accessing Coinbase and having an account on there. I just downloaded the software called blue wallet as I'll download any software application on my computer. And in terms of creating a wallet, it's free. It's really easy to do so. So I'll just show you a quick example here. So I'm going to be creating a new wallet. A simple Bitcoin wallet here. I'm going to create it so I can name it whatever I want. My first wallet, it's a Bitcoin wallet. I'm going to hit create. And this is a very important thing to know, even if you're going to be doing your own wallet or any other cryptocurrency wallet, is backing up these funds. Because it is true, right? If I lost the ability to access those funds like you were talking about, they're gone forever, right? I don't have the same assurances and protections that dollars in a bank account, which is obviously the trade-off of this. What's nice about a lot of these softwares is they have these uh, backups for you. So it's always very important anytime you create a wallet, you're going to want to write down the backup that it creates for you. So in this instance, it's these 12 words up here, right? Vicious, dust, meat. It's always these really random, simple words. You're going to want to write that down on like a piece of paper or a secure location that's not internet connected. Because if someone has access to these 12 words right now, let's say I had a whole Bitcoin on this device, on this particular wallet. And then you had those 12 words. You can download this blue wallet software on your computer, enter in those 12 words, and now you have access to that same wallet. But the flip side is obviously you have the security if I lost this computer, but I have the 12 words, I can just download that software again, put in the 12 words, and my funds are safe. But I think why I think this is a really cool application is going away, obviously, from the U.S. once again. Say I live in a country and 
uh, I don't have very stable infrastructure going on and I want to move to a different country overnight, but a lot of my funds are locked up in the bank. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to take my wealth with me. Well, something like Bitcoin, I could memorize 12 words. I could put all of my money into Bitcoin on this wallet. I could leave literally everything behind. I can walk across just the clothes that I have on me, but I have 12 words memorized in my head. I can go to that new country and get a computer, download that wallet, put in the 12 words, and now I've just taken all of my money with me. And there's actually someone in that Orange County Bitcoin network group that I talked about who actually moved here from China. And that was a way that she actually was able to get funds out of China was putting it into Bitcoin and memorizing it in these words. So this is something that should probably go in like a locked safe in your house mm -hmm. for your wallet. So I would I would preview the, the Coinbase like an exchange, like a stock exchange, basically, mm -hmm. right? You're buying your stock, but then you need to go the extra step and set up a wallet and you're going to transfer everything from the from the quote unquote stock exchange or Coinbase exchange into your secure wallet. And you cannot lose those words. That's something you're going to write down. You're going to put like. I have ours in my safe at home and in my mm -hmm. mom's safe at her house. So if there was like anything that happened, there's those words that are like in two spots that are secure that are not online. Mm -hmm. And then I'll show you how these two connect, right? You don't have to really link them in any uh, particular way. Uh, but let's say, for example, I wanted to move some of them from Coinbase to my own personal wallet, right? And going back to that one person's questions of like, what's the best way to do it? I think it's always good to have maybe funds you want highly liquid, right? Funds that I want to be able to sell on like a moment's notice on the actual exchange itself, right? Sitting on Coinbase because you can easily access them and sell them. But ones that you're trying to save like really long term, put them in like a personal wallet and keep it very secure. And how I would send funds basically from like an exchange to my own personal wallet. Uh, Debbie had a good analogy, I think, um, the uh, that last uh, session we did, calling it kind of like a, a wire transfer in a way. Uh, I kind of like think of it as an email sometimes as well. And let's say I was trying to get some of this uh, Bitcoin out of this exchange and send it uh, to that wallet that I created. This is Algorand, but I'll just choose that one. So basically, you're going to have these addresses that you're sending funds to. So right now, I'm on this blue wallet, right? This is this privately owned wallet that I have access to. And I want to send funds to it. So I'm going to click Receive here because I'm going to be receiving the funds on this wallet. And I'm going to be... Uh, shown an address to send funds to. So this string of letters right here, B, C, 1, it just looks like a bunch of uh, jumbled letters together is the actual place that I'm sending those funds to. So I can copy it from this wallet here. And you're going to make sure all of the numbers and letters are exactly right. Because let's say, for example, the first B, I capitalize the B instead of lowercase B. That's a completely different address. You sent your money to somewhere else. Uh, so I just make sure I've copied it here. And you can just click on it to copy it. Yep, correctly. exactly. Yeah. But just, don't try to write it down. Just click in copy. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. And then I'm going to go to my wallet, right? Let's say I had, this is a Bitcoin wallet, for example. We'll just assume it is. And this is where I'm going to put in that address. Who am I sending this to, right? So Debbie said like a wire transfer. Think of this BC1 QRE is kind of like your bank account's routing information account number. And I'm going to choose the amount I'm going to send. Let's say I wanted to send you know, 10 Algorand to this or $10 worth or $1,000 worth. And then basically I'm just going to hit continue and send and authorize that. So I think on the technical level, it's not as difficult as people might think. It's just a matter of doing it a few times. I was terrified the first time I sent Bitcoin to my wallet. And I was just like waiting for that funds to show in that wallet. Uh, so it's not, if, you, if that's you, obviously you're not alone. It's most people when they're using any form of new technology. Uh, and then in terms of actually sending the funds back to the exchange, it's just going to be the inverse, right? 
I'm going to send the funds to Coinbase, so I'm going to need that account routing number from Coinbase. So I'm going to go to receive. So anywhere you're sending the funds to, you're going to be receiving. Anywhere you're sending from, obviously, sending. So here is the account information from Coinbase, the address I'm going to be sending funds to. All I have to do is hit this copy icon at the top right here, or obviously you can highlight all of it and hit copy. Oh, I don't need the uh, dictionary for that. <laughs> and then I'm going to receive, or sorry, send the funds away from here, right? Let's say I'm going to send the funds. Who am I sending it to? What is the address? Paste it there. Choose the amount I want to send and hit send. So that's on a mechanical level how it works. But in terms of uh, using it easy, I always recommend you know having that vault in place for you. Uh, I want to make sure I get the questions too, so I believe plenty of room for uh, Debbie as well. And then Debbie, let me know if there's any other questions that came up. I do. Uh, um, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Debbie, do you want to do questions at the end, or should we just do some now? Okay. Okay, we'll do a couple. Uh, so this first question, then. Uh, Debbie, still there? Okay. Yeah, cool. I'm here. I'm here. Yeah. Okay. Let me know if there's any other questions that came in after this one. Uh, so someone asked, with all these upstart cryptocurrencies via ICOs and STOs, how can you trust individuals are not exploiting the initial fundraising? How do you know what to invest in? What are the safest cryptocurrencies to invest in? Uh, so a really great question. And uh, that's the issue. And uh, you really can't trust, I think, a lot of the newer ones just because it's incredibly easy to, to generate a cryptocurrency. There's, if you go at home right now and you're on a computer, if you type in, ERC20 token generator, you'll be taken to a website where you could basically create a token with your name and create as many tokens as you want and you just have to pay a small fee to generate these tokens. And it's very easy to spin up a website, right? And 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 create a hype piece and, and narrative and, and send coins to influencers and say, hey, there's this new project. Uh, and that's why I'm incredibly skeptical of most smaller, newer cryptocurrencies. Uh, because like I said, it is very easy to scam people and create a narrative piece and and since they are so small in terms of the actual money that is sitting in these like projects, it's very easy to manipulate the market itself, right? You could have, you could be the creator of a token and give a few to a, a few group of people and, and raise the value very quickly and then get people in and excited and they buy this cryptocurrency and then you just sell all of your tokens overnight. And they're called like pump and dump schemes and they're, and they're everywhere in the cryptocurrency space. And it's a big reason why I think a lot of the time, like I don't invest really in anything besides Bitcoin, I guess, full disclosure, just because it's the one that I think is, out of anything, the most secure, right? This entire asset class is still what I consider like a risky asset class. It's, it's a new emerging market and is not a guarantee that it'll continue to exist. But uh, that's why I think the safest ones would be the ones with like the biggest market cap, right? It's a lot harder to move the market either way. So Bitcoin right now, I think is around a $700 billion market cap, uh, has a lot of liquidity within that market. So you can sell very easily into it, right? I think that's the importance of, of finding projects that have a lot of liquidity because Say you have, like in your case, you said six figures in cryptocurrencies, you're going to want to have that cryptocurrency have a lot of liquidity to actually sell into, right? If I have a billion dollars in a random, you know, currency, but there's no actual liquidity in there, I'm never going to be able to get my money out of there. So that's, that's the big thing in terms of finding cryptocurrency. So I think if you don't have a deep, like, understanding of, of how the blockchains work or the technological side, I think sticking to, like, the the major two or three cryptocurrencies is probably the best way to go and continue to like learn how they work and assume almost everything is a scam until proven otherwise. Like I, I, I really enjoy learning about Bitcoin and, and like I said, geeked out over a heart every single day. I'm constantly like trying to make sure I'm not like overlooking anything. Right. And, and I always kind of have that sense of doubt of like, okay, what if this happens? What if this happens? And 
that's the only way I really learned about Bitcoin was like fear of like, what am I missing? Like, where's, where is this going to go wrong and continually like learned about it? I think continue to learn, continue to understand is the best way to go about it. So what would you consider the top two or three? Good question. I should have said that. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Bitcoin is probably like the, the top one, then Ethereum. And then the third one, maybe something like Cardano or Solana, I think are like the other like big ones right now. Uh, I think I'll say just Bitcoin and Ethereum yeah. are probably the two big ones. Yeah. I think Debbie, you asked a couple of questions during that. Yeah. So there was a question um, that said, I have a good amount of Dogecoin. Is that, uh, is it ever going to go anyplace? <laughs> is it going? Yeah. What, what are you saying, Grant? Are we going to get something out of this Dogecoin? Everybody put money in? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not a, a huge believer myself. I'd say like the, the general point of Dogecoin uh, like by design is that it was like kind of like a joke. Um, like the creator relates, like he, the creator of Dogecoin literally said like, oh, I'm making this as a joke to like make fun of cryptocurrencies. Uh, I think on a technical level, it really doesn't have much to like offer. I know it sounds harsh, but there's like not really like a, a place for it. Uh, yeah, not to get like super into the technical weeds, but there might be like random instances where you could use it. I know like certain sports teams, I think, or like the Mavericks allow you to buy merchandise and stuff. Uh, but I kind of treat it as like a penny stock, right? Where like it, it might go up a lot in value and continue to go up a lot in value, but view it conceptually as that. So that other person asked you, asked a question about like what amount of money to put in. Uh, the entire space, any single cryptocurrency, I think it's always good to like treat it as money that you're almost kind of saying goodbye to, more so for peace of mind, right? Because if you're putting in money that you can't afford to lose in this space, and these price movements are incredibly volatile and they'll continue to be volatile probably for a decent amount of time. This thing is going to like emotionally wreck you. And I remember early on when I was investing in Bitcoin and I still didn't really deeply understand it. I was like terrified when it'd go down and ecstatic when it would go up. And I think both sides of those are necessarily really healthy for money and investments and especially if you have big responsibilities. So I think while continuing to learn how they work and how to work the wallets and everything, just invest it as like fun money and see how it works and uh, once you start to really understand some projects and learning them, still treat it as uh, like a risky asset, uh, risky asset class for sure. I would have to agree with that. It's kind of like going to Las Vegas. We all like to go. Mm. We all like to have a good time, but we're not going to Vegas with money in our pocket thinking we're coming home with that money. We're, we were literally thrilled if we come home with the same money we left with. And if we have a big win, then that was a really exciting trip. But it wasn't expected. You expect that you're putting that money to the side. It's part of the vacation fund. And you're expected mm -hmm. to use the money and come home without it. So I think that this being a very risky area still, it's, it is asset. I think that we're going to see a lot of financial future in this crypto space. I think this could definitely make some big changes for our families in the future. But as of today, I think I love what you just said right now is, you know, put it in there and don't expect to get it back. And when it does double, triple or quadruple someday, you're going to be super stoked. Yeah. Uh, uh, no questions on my end, unless there's any. Yeah. Oh, wait, so maybe I think. One do you have more questions, Grant, on, on your Zoom? You're good. Account? Yeah, you're good. Okay, so the, the only other question um, that had come in was just uh, Druin's when he said, what is the absolute first step one should take mm. when getting involved with crypto? And, you know, so you had explained that. I just want to make sure that everybody got that, that the first thing you're going to do is choose the exchange that you want to buy from. 
<laughs> and I think it is a good thing to kind of experiment. And everybody can see Tony. He's been so patient sitting there. And me and Tony are going to get into lending here in a minute. But, um, you know, so far in the lending space, I, I think Tony would agree is that Coinbase has probably been the easiest for us to be able to see transactions happening. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the best exchange for you. So definitely choose your exchange and think of your exchange um, as though it is your Merrill Lynch or your Charles Schwab, right? It's your place that you're going to be investing your money and choosing the stocks or the Bitcoin or ETH or the altcoin or whatever it is that you want to buy. And then obviously you want to then move that money when you've bought it to your wallet, which is going to be like your savings account. So think of your exchange as your checking account and your wallet as your savings account. You're moving it there to keep it there and to keep it safe and not touch it or use it. So, um, Drew, I hope that that actually answered your question. Do you have um, he want he, part of his question was, uh, for example, invest like five hundred dollars. Um, so what would you say, Grant, just being in, you know, you're uh, part of Anderson Advisors, somebody comes to you and says, I've <coughs> never done it before. I know you said start playing with the exchanges with a dollar or two, but is there a percentage of maybe someone's, uh, the money that they put away, two savings out of each paycheck? Is What would you say right now in this crypto space that you guys would be recommending that they put to the side? Yeah, so I think Anderson kind of has uh, a general like, percentage allocation that they usually recommend and they throw cryptocurrencies and kind of like the cash and cash equivalents. So that'd be obviously like literal dollars or gold and then like cryptocurrencies. And they say of an entire portfolio, they never recommend more than like 3%. Um, obviously just because most currencies, right, they don't really do much for you outside of sitting there. Uh, but I think especially cryptocurrencies, if you're still kind of just like, I don't know really what any of these are, I don't really recommend more than like 1% of your like net worth or whatever it is into there. Um, that obviously can change as like you understand more. And so for me, like I, I understand it and I, I believe in it and stuff. So I, I have a little bit more, but like, I, I think the, the biggest mantra is just like invest with whatever amount of money you're in there. It doesn't scare you how much is in there. So I think that's my general rule of thumb that I say, cause everyone's different, right. In terms of like how much money they can actually play around with. Um, but that's the biggest thing. Like if you look at your Coinbase account and you're like, God, that's scary how much is in there and hopefully that doesn't go away, then I think you might be a little bit overexposed into that account. Yeah, I love that. That's actually a really great one. Um, so Drew uh, jumped in and he said, yes, it did. Thank you. I'm going to watch this over and over again so I can thoroughly get started. So Drew, I think that's a great idea and you are more than welcome to um, contact me and I can get you in touch with anybody that we need to to make sure you've got you know all of the fundamentals. And uh, Pamela jumps in. She says, I picked it. So this is the Dogecoin. She said, I picked it because I'm a dog. I think she, I don't know if she's saying she's a Doge lover, but I'm thinking she means she's a dog lover. So uh, just kind of <laughs> some fun here. This is, these, these are my, these are my uh, YouTube followers. So I love it. We got to make it a little fun here today. Not all so serious. Um, but that mm -hmm. is it as far as questions so far for you, Grant. I don't have any more here on the, on the channel. No, I think it's, oh, a couple questions here. Yeah. Uh, which one? Oh, Blue Wallet? No, I think it's, it might be something else. Is that like a, I don't know what Blue World is. Oh, no, okay. Yeah, so it's Blue Wallet. Uh, similar, yeah, for sure. But that one is like a Bitcoin-only wallet. Uh, and what I can do with Debbie too, I can send you a link uh, to like different cryptocurrency wallets um, that I recommend for people because some are 
like only Bitcoin specific, right? And they're going to be super secure. And then some are for like all cryptocurrencies, which are nice because you have more usability, flexibility, but uh, more potential like weakness there, just more complexity. But yeah, I'll send it to you as well, Debbie. That would be fantastic. Thank you. Okay, and then Danielle's back. Okay, well, I'm going to formally introduce Deb up there. <laughs> uh, so Debbie is the host of Mortgage Mom Radio Show. I know a lot of you are listening from her show today. And it can be found in many markets by radio in L.A. It's on Go Country 105. Um, she's in Las Vegas and Washington, to name a few, as well as podcast and YouTube. She delivers weekly education about real estate and mortgage. Her career began in 1995 with real estate, and she has been a lender now for the past 21 years. Uh, Debbie is a preferred lender for Team Whitney Real Estate, so we have used her several times, and her and her team rock it, uh, and I'm just going to let her take it away. All right. Well, thank you so much, um, Danielle. I really, really appreciate it. And with me today, I have Tony Kuda. So, Tony, I'm going to apologize right now. She asked me if I had any slides, and I said no. Uh, she made that beautiful slide for me. I didn't make one for you, so um, shame on me. I'm so sorry. Um, but the reason that my team rocks it is because of this man right here. This is Tony Kuda. He is the VP of Finance with JMJ Financial. He has been in the industry for uh, over 20 years, and he specializes in just about every product from conventional government and jumbo portfolio. Um, so this is T Tony Kuda, and he's the one that's making it happen. And every time I have a question, which is just about five or six times a day, uh, we're dialing up Tony to get the answers, figure out how to structure it and how to make it work. So he is uh, he's the power behind Mortgage Mom Radio. So, Tony, thank you so much for being here, agreeing to come and do this with us. Really, really appreciate it. No worries. This is great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I wanted you on because uh, like Danielle actually started the beginning of this hour with was that I did a, a transaction with her earlier. Um, it was last year. I want to say it's probably like May or June-ish. I'm, I'm kind of searching the brain right now. Um, but we did. She bought an investment property. It was a fourplex. And she had, as she mentioned, a ton of Bitcoin that we could not use as down payment or reserves. And um, I, it's it's changed a lot. We've recently closed some transactions where we were able to uh, verify the Bitcoin, source it and use it. So we're definitely coming along in the space. And being that we're doing a Bitcoin seminar right now, we're teaching people about crypto. I want also the listeners to understand that if they start to invest in this space and they do create value in an account, that there may be a way that they can take that asset and put it towards another asset that is also going to be something like real estate where you're helping to hedge against the inflation that we all see uh, on its way to us right now. Um, so uh, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions, if you don't mind. Are you, you ready to answer those? Can I? Absolutely. Can I, Let's can do I, it. Can I try to stump you? Yes. All right. I love it. So uh, number one question is, can we use uh, crypto for down payment? Absolutely, we can. So, the, and like you said, the things have changed over probably even the last year. So right now on, um, you know, our programs of conventional FHA and VA, we're allowed to use crypto for down payment. We do have to withdraw it from our exchange and put it into a U.S. either savings or checking account. Um, but at that point, once we liquidate it, we are able to use it for down payment and reserves once it's liquidated. Um, those programs do not allow for it to stay in the exchange and to be able to use it for reserves. But the second it's liquidated and put into a savings or checking account, we are good to go for down payment and reserves. 
Nice. So, for example, uh, somebody buys $10,000 worth of Bitcoin uh, six months ago and they bought it. They transferred it to their wallet. Now it's sitting in their wallet. They transfer it back to the exchange so that they can liquidate it. Now that $10,000 is worth $30,000. Uh, what are what are we going to do to try to source that in order for us to be able to use it? What what kind of documents or what are you looking for to see? Yeah, the biggest thing is going to be the the withdrawal coming out of your current exchange. Uh, what we would like to do too is we like to see the money going into the exchange originally. We do understand uh, market fluctuations, so we might put ten thousand in, but maybe we're taking thirty thousand out um, because of market fluctuations. So we understand that, but you sort of want to show that it was a uh, eligible asset going into the exchange. And then once it's withdrawn from the exchange, we consider it an eligible usable asset at that point. So me as a loan officer, would it be safe to say, cause I, and I'm trying to figure this out too, which is why I'm, I'm grilling you at the moment. Um, yeah. But would it, would it be safe to say if I went to a borrower and I said, Hey, give me that June statement where you put the $10,000 in. I look through that June statement. I don't see any large deposits. So the money has already been seasoned, right? And then we're going to obviously watch the money then be withdrawn and redeposited into the, into the account um, afterwards once it's liquidated. Or are you thinking that you want to see May and June to get that 60 days of seasoning for that 10000 that was used? What What is going to be the best way to prove that the assets used to buy the Bitcoin were eligible assets? So really, it's the, the deposit going into the exchange that what we're going to look for. If you don't mind, let me share my screen real quick. And I'm going to show you the report that we would pull from Coinbase. That way we can sort of check that out. It actually gives you all the transactions pretty much for the history of you being on Coinbase. So it's going to have your you know buys coming in and your sales going out. So let me see if I can do that real fast, if you don't mind. Sure. Did that work? Yeah, I can see it. All right, great. So when you log into Coinbase up here, this is going to be your sort of your account right here. You want to hit your reports over here, and then we're going to generate our transaction history here. We're going to generate a report. We're going to choose PDF. It's going to generate, and it has one more second here. We can also, you know, you can change it to just your buys, your sales, or what kind of transactions you had, and you can also change the period if you want. Um, for us, I recommend just getting your full report so that way we have absolutely everything. Once we do that, this is sort of what it's going to look like, and it's just going to have all your transaction histories. The biggest thing to show here is whenever we buy them, it's going to show that it came from U U.S. dollars. So that's probably our biggest thing right here, just showing that it came from U.S. dollars, and then again, it coming out. We don't really care when it gets transferred out. We're just going to show uh, it getting transferred into our savings or checking account. My personal one up here just shows Tony Kuda. My email address is my customer. So we will be able to sometimes have to link an email address or something like that, um, you know, to be able to link it to our borrower. Ultimately, that's our biggest thing. Can we link it to the borrower on our loan? And uh, did those funds go into a checking or savings account? That's really what we're looking for. Okay. And that's going to be on conventional VA and, um, and uh, FHA loans. There are going to be some different guidance for jumbo or for non-QM loans that we do as well. Um, most of those are in the jumbo space. They're really going to want to see those funds going into the transaction or buying the Bitcoin originally. Um, and again, showing the withdrawal coming out. Um, and those are probably the biggest things. 
Okay, so so let me back up. I just want to make sure I've got it right. So conventional FHA, VA, normal Fannie Freddie, um, we're looking at just getting this report to show this is going to show us the money bought, and then obviously they're going to liquidate from here. We don't actually have to go back Correct. to every bank account, bank statement for every time the buy happened to, you know, like I'm not having to source them back and forth. Not having to source them back and forth. Uh, the biggest thing is the money coming out. We like to see it going in, but we're not always going to be able to see. You're definitely not ever going to see the exact transaction, 10000 going in or 10000 coming out because of market fluctuations. So um, pretty much just want to see that the Bitcoin was purchased with an eligible asset, you know, checking savings, that kind of stuff, or even um, uh, retirement accounts, whatever it might be. Um, and as long as that was the case, whatever comes out, it's eligible to use. Gotcha. Okay, so then back then to that jumbo that's where we're going to actually have to show the bank account where the funds were withdrawn. So we're going to have to see that transaction. It was withdrawn and went into, in this circumstance, Coinbase. And then we're seeing Coinbase match up with same day, same dollar amount that was deposited, correct? That's absolutely accurate. You know, that's only going to be in the jumbo space. We definitely have a little bit more room when we're just doing conventional files. Um, but yes, in the jumbo space, they're actually going to want to see the asset that it came out of. So they're going to want to see the, the withdrawal from the checking or savings going into Coinbase. Okay, so now let's talk about the fun one, which is our non-QM. So what have we got in that space that can help us out with um, potentially leaving it in its exchange as our reserve so we don't have to liquidate, um, you know, kind of talk about what we might have available today that would be a little, uh, little easier, a little more lenient, maybe a little better for us investors that don't want to be taxed on the liquidation. Absolutely. So as of right now in the non-QM space, we can use 50% of your Bitcoin that you have in your account. The one uh, condition that they do have on it is they will only allow Bitcoin right now. So they're not allowing any of the other coins um, to speak sort of what Grant was sort of talking about, you know, with Bitcoin being the, the major player and the most uh, um the one with the least amount of issues. Um, so yeah, Bitcoin is the only one that's used. They'll use 50% of the balance for reserves and it stays in your account. Obviously, if we're ever going to use it for down payment, we have to liquidate it, um, but they would allow for reserves in the non-QM space, 50% of the account balance. That is amazing. So going back to Danielle that bought a fourplex, it was an investment property. If she had gone into the non-QM space where maybe she, uh, do we have the product for the DSCR? We do. Okay, so a DSCR loan, we've talked about this on the show before. There's a lot of people watching today that have never watched me, so I'll just explain it very, very quickly. It is a debt service program, so basically your credit score and the property are what are qualifying the loan. So if the property, the rents that come off of the property will carry the monthly payment, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance, we are not actually verifying income to qualify for that loan. So had Danielle not gone a Fannie Freddie route and we had gone into that uh, you know, non-QM space, we could have done a debt service loan, super easy qualifying, kept her Bitcoin in her account, used that as the asset for the reserve, and we could have closed that loan. Like, I mean, those are like the easiest loans. I swear, I love them. My yes, favorite. me too. Everything <laughs> you said is accurate, and I love those ones as well. <laughs> They're my favorite, my favorite. All right, so uh, just out of curiosity, do you see anything um, coming down the pipe? It, you know, like, um, do you see any changes coming from any of the, you know, JP Morgans or the Chases or uh, Wells? You see anybody starting to lighten up a little bit? Are you hearing any chatter? Anything you can give us or not yet? It's all 
I think that everyone is going to get more aggressive going forward for sure. I think we're at the beginning stages of being uh, allowed to be able to use Bitcoin to begin with. So uh, going forward, aggression is definitely going to be the play. Um, one of the guidelines they even gave you was on Chase Jumbo, and they're one of the ones that allows for us to uh, liquidate into our account and use it for assets and reserves. And you know, they're, they're also the one that wants to show it being purchased. So even Chase Jumbo and some of the bigger players that we have um, are, are getting into this space now and allowing for it, which is great for the for the industry. That is awesome. Okay, so we have a couple of things that have come in uh, since you and I started talking, so I'm going to read those off. We've got, um, let's see, Drew says, yes, it did. Thank you. I'm going to, okay, we already read that one. Uh, we got it. We've got the dog lover. Um, then we've got Drew again says, not asking for you to go into details on this, but do you know anything about NFTs? And if so, uh, will you be having a seminar soon? So yes, uh, I'm going to put something together. I would personally like to understand NFTs. I would like to understand Web3, the metaverse. Uh, so stay tuned, Drew. I'm going to find somebody that is really good at that to give us a presentation. Um, I've got Nancy jumps on. She says, great presentation. Thank you. Uh, Carrie jumps on. She says, Tony is amazing. Thank you for always putting up with me and my questions. So that's... <laughs> That's obviously our carry that we love. And then Robert jumps in and he says, how about taxes? So I think he's um, I think he's relating to the fact that we said that we would you would ha you mentioned um, that right now in the uh, normal conventional conforming Fannie Freddie FHA VA space that they would have to liquidate in order to use the funds for reserves. And I think he's asking how about taxes. So um, at least that's the only place that I can go with with that question because it was pretty um, vague. So, Robert, if you want to put something else into that feed that's a little bit more specific, be happy to read that to Tony to get his answer on that. Um, but from what I can take of this, uh, Robert, what I, I think you're asking, what about taxes? And yes, you, you would actually, you know, obviously, if you liquidate the funds, you have to deal with your CPA or your accountant, whoever runs your books, and uh, understand what the repercussion of selling uh, your, you know, Bitcoin or your crypto would be, you know, if, if you're going to use it for the transaction. So um, one more time, I just want to make sure that that we're making it clear, Tony, there are no programs that we have right now that are going to use anything but Bitcoin. Is that correct? If it's staying in your account right now, we can use all cryptocurrencies that are liquidated and put into your checking and savings. If we're trying to keep it in our account and not liquidate and use it for reserves, Bitcoin is the only one that currently that we're able to use. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. So, um, Danielle, I can't see your Zoom chat since I've got the YouTube chat going to make sure I'm keeping on top of that. Do you have any questions that are coming in for Tony on the underwriting side? I don't think so. Uh, ours was one of the top cryptos besides Bitcoin. So I think Grant already answered that. It's probably Bitcoin and Ethereum are the top two. And then we had the same question, are there any taxes or transaction fees associated with crypto? So yes, it's just going to be like if you sell stocks, you have capital gains. So you would need to talk to your accountant on what those gains would be. Um, if you're holding your crypto over a year, you, you would have long-term capital gains versus short-term. So lower lower rates of taxes usually on your long-term capital gains. And then there are fees when you sell your cryptocurrency. Um, so that varies like on a minute by minute basis. So when you go in to sell, it'll tell you what the fee is to, uh, you know, move your money or sell it out of that account. That was a very good, that was a very good answer, Danielle. It seems like you've read <laughs> up, you've read up on the whole cryptocurrency experience. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And do you have anybody in the crowd that's got any questions for Tony? 
Any other questions for Tony? No? No. Okay. All right. Well, hey, Tony, I think that you and I hit it right on the head. I think we're done with our part as far as mortgage lending goes. It's getting more aggressive, guys. Hear that if you've got your money uh, tied up in uh, any kind of crypto asset and you're thinking about getting yourself a mortgage, you've been told no, you can't use it. Well, hey, guess what? Uh, Tony over at JMJ is going to tell you you can. So you need to call the Mortgage Mom team. You need to get on with Carrie, who's uh, jumping in on the feed, and get your application in because we can get those done for you. Love it. <laughs> All right, hey, so again, you have no other, you have no other questions? Nope, we're good. So I'm going to hand it back to you. Okay. Uh, well, we hope everybody, you can, yes. Uh, we hope everybody enjoyed today. We're all here to learn together. I know I learned some stuff I, I definitely didn't know. Um, I think there's going to, we'll ask if people want to do some more of like an advanced cryptocurrency seminar, because I'm definitely interested in learning about NFTs. I don't know anything about that uh, yet. So we'll probably set something like that up in the next month or so. And if there's a future seminar you want us to host about real estate or lending um, or a cause you want our team to fundraise for, because our team is really involved in our community, as you can see for our Super Bowl pool, uh, just let us know because we've raised funds for a lot of causes that clients have brought to our attention that are um, they're very passionate about and then we jump in and help in any way we can. Um, once again, you can text me at 310-987-9103 if you want to be added to our future list for events. And uh, if you weren't on the beginning of the call, we are doing a Super Bowl pool fundraiser for Maria's Closet. Um, it's a nonprofit organization that dresses young girls for prom and we're going to take 40% of the proceeds from the Super Bowl squares and give it to Maria's closet and then the remaining 60% of the proceeds from the squares are going to go back to the winners uh, to join that and if you want to pick out your squares for the pool you text TW event so that's for team Whitney event uh, to the phone number 59559 and you can join that um, and thank you all for coming today and we hope you learned a lot. Hey, so really quick before you shut it down, Danielle, um, I just I love that Maria's closet and I know you touched on it really fast at the beginning, uh, but I just want to make sure everybody understands what that is. Maria's closet was created by um, Rana, correct? Yes, so, she's yeah. our title representative uh, from Fidelity National Title. This is her nonprofit organization and basically they take um, hundreds of applications every year and they choose a couple hundred girls every year to dress for prom that would not be able to afford to do so other otherwise um, their families you know are are struggling financially or what have you these girls would not be able to go to prom without the help of Maria's closet so they give them not only dresses and shoes and purses and accessories they do a whole runway show where the girls get to showcase the dresses that they've picked out because they get to pick out of several dresses. Um, it's a great organization. And this year, because of COVID, they really need accessories for prom coming up. So that's why we're doing the Super Bowl pool fundraiser so that we can give $1,000 to Maria's closet and they can go out and buy purses and accessories for these girls. I think that is absolutely amazing. If anybody has any dresses that they want to donate, what is the best way to get through? Should they call you directly, Danielle? They can call us. They can call us directly, and we will get them to our title representative. So again, you can uh, call or text me on my on my cell phone, and that is three one zero nine eight seven nine one zero three. Perfect. I love that one. That's why I just wanted you to explain what it was one more time before we shut it down. Um, but this was great. Thank you so much for having me and allowing me to be part of it. Thank you for having Tony. Tony, thank you for doing it for me. 
Um, yeah, thank really you, everybody, and, and thank you to Grant, too. Yes, and thank you, Grant. That was absolutely amazing. It was wonderful education. I mean, I, I've been doing a lot of it, and, you know, as far as the Bitcoin, and, you know, me and you have been talking about it a long time, and me and Danielle has been buying it, and um, but that was actually really cool to know where it started and really the, the, the backstory of it and then how it works. It was very educational even for me, so thank you again. See you all at the next one. All right, bye-bye. Thank you. Have a great one. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you, Tony. Debbie Marcuse, licensed by the Department of Financial Institutions, NMLS ID 237926. Also licensed in Arizona, 0941504. Florida, LO76508. Georgia, 69178. Idaho, Nevada, 57237. Oregon, Tennessee, 184373. Texas, Washington, MLO237926. She's a mortgage mom. She can get things done. When you're in need and don't know where to go, pick up the phone and call mom.